Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Well, let's kick this thing off. Welcome to this week's episode of The Flow Line. We are here with our special guests from Derek. We've got Sam sitting on the sidelines, and now we have Mr. Charlie Stalker. Charlie, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thanks for asking. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. This has been good, and uh, we're on our second uh, part to our solid control series. And so uh, before we get going, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, who you are? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I work as the tech service manager over at Derek, and uh, I started about seven years ago. Um, I was fortunate enough. I uh, finished up school and went in the military for a while. And uh, thank you it, for your service. Oh, yeah, no problem. He's an American citizen saying. now, so he I, can I saw say that, that on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank cool. you. I'm still celebrating. My office looks like July Fourth puked all over it. Mm-hmm. So thanks to the. I think there's two lovely ladies here at our office who uh, who set who decorated for me. So <laughs> not to take the spotlight away from you, but it, it's it feels good to be American. Awesome. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's a great place to live. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, so um, yeah, so I did that, and I was fortunate enough to get hired uh, with no oil field background whatsoever, just a positive attitude, I think. And, uh, you know, they brought me on and uh, into the tech service department, worked as a tech service engineer and, and focused on product development for a while. And and, uh, and here we are. Perfect. And uh, why don't we go ahead and introduce yourself again? Uh, Matt Wiggins, uh, glad to be back. Perfect. Uh, first podcast down and I uh, really enjoyed it. So uh, looking forward to this session and I Again, I'm in the technical service department with Derek and also the Solids Control School instructor. Uh, this is my sixth year with Derek. And uh, prior to uh, educating around the world and in, in, in the oil field, I spent 15 years in public education. So, ah, very nice. We figured it'd be easier if we just hired Matt and taught him solids control and fluids and stuff than than, than trying to like us become educators. It just seemed yeah. like an easier move, really, and I think it was a good move. That is an interesting approach, actually, and obviously it's worked out very well. Uh, yeah, when we had lunch there a few weeks back, or now it's probably a couple months, but uh, I didn't realize how much educating you guys did throughout the globe. It's it's uh, it's quite fascinating, and I think that'd be one of my goals for 2020 is to to head over to your guys' shop and actually, uh, you know, put my hands on some things, take a look, and and attend maybe one of your guys' courses. I just, again, I didn't realize uh, you guys are obviously a company that provides equipment, but, uh, you know, even just as important, you guys help educate the industry, which is why we're here today. Um, and so uh, I'll let you guys take the hot seat, but uh, all listeners out there, if you missed the first one, uh, go back to the most recent episode. Uh, we had uh, the four of us to, uh, you know, we brought Derek on to, to help educate the industry with regards to solids control. Um, you have myself and uh, the infamous Matt Offenbacher is here with us today. So you got four of us on the mic. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'd like to kind of kick this to you guys. What do you guys want to talk about today? Yeah, I think as a follow-up to the uh, first episode, um, uh, it would be great to just talk about solids control equipment. I think everyone's generally familiar with uh, the basic equipment on a rig, but I think it'd be good to just kind of go piece by piece and just go down the line of the mud pits and talk about uh, each piece of equipment real quick and then maybe zero in on a, the, you know, the most important stuff, probably the shakers and the centrifuges after that. Sound good? I like it. So where does the journey begin? Uh, well, honestly, the journey begins at the shell shaker. Ah. Every rig that's operating in the world should have a shell shaker. I would hope so. Uh Process is 100% of the flow, so it probably is the most critical piece of equipment uh, in the solids control line. Mm-hmm. 
And so, um, you know, moving downstream from there, you've got desanders, which if you've ever noticed on a, a rig, the big giant cones that are uh, sitting up there most of the time unused, especially in the U.S., uh, those are desanders, and they're meant to uh, strip out down a certain size range, uh, which we can talk about in a little bit. Um, then there's also the smaller cones, the little baby ones. Those are called desilters. And, you know, the API has classified all these, uh, all the solids into a certain range. So really each piece of equipment that we're discussing removes successfully finer and finer solids. Mm. Uh, obviously with the very last piece being the centrifuge, um, just because the incredible amount of G-force that it can produce. Right, right. And, and, uh, following that, there's also other means of solids control, um, by way of, you know, there's dewatering, flocking and stuff like that, which I know we're talking more so about the, the equipment side of it, but, uh, you know, for those out there that that's another form of, of solids control. Um, so that's interesting. Well, <clears throat> why don't we talk a little bit, uh, actually one thing I was curious about, um, and, and this goes back to the early two thousands when I stepped foot on a rig, it was, it was a triple, we were drilling some pretty deep wells, but at the time we only had, uh, one shaker and, and then we actually ended up bringing in another shaker. Um, but, uh, how long have shakers been around? I mean, have they been around for, since the beginning of time when we drilled or what was the, you know, the original shaker? What did that look like? Do you have any idea? Yeah, uh, I, I think we could speak a little bit to that. I know, um, you, you know, I think, I think historically, right? It was settling pits. So they drilled out of uh, mud pits, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, anything that would be pulled from the pit would be returned to the pit, and you just had gravity gravity settling pits. And you still see that, uh, like the double horseshoe pits. Uh, occasionally, you see that, and people still <laughs> yeah. drill like that in West Texas. I could think off the top of my head, uh, in a few areas internationally. So that was the you know your original solids control. I don't when a shell shaker came. I don't know when exactly uh, well, when it came. Shell shakers essentially early '70s where they really the popularity kind of took hold and if you were to ever go back and see a picture or i don't even know if there would be a video but <laughs> you would see a a shaker uh so the vibrating bed but it would be sloped downhill with a single vibrating motor on top mm. um at that time obviously introducing a, a vibrating motor into the uh, onto the basket to uh create the vibration increase in g-force uh was you know popular for helping to convey the solids but with one single motor, you initially only had kind of like a um, circular motion. And so they had to slant the shaker downhill in order to keep the solids moving towards the discharge in. I got gotcha. you. So I know Derek came in, uh, I think in the right, late 70s, 1977. I think we made our first shaker for the oil field, but we started in the mining industry. So we took a lot of mm. um, things we knew about vibratory equipment and solid separation from the mining industry into the oil field. And we certainly weren't the first ones to do it, but... Um, yeah, like Matt mentioned, those machines were very large and you might've had one or maybe two, but they were probably as big as this room and, 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 you know, downhill motion, uh, and it's just increased from there. So when you got in 2000, I think you were starting to see, um, the screen side, the screen technology really catch up and, and you're starting to see people screen finer and understand solids control and understand, you know, the fluids and rheology a lot you know, more clearly. Uh, and the value of solids control. So you started pe seeing people screen finer, and then when they started screening finer, you know, they realized, well, we got to have more. Right. And so then you went to two to three. Uh, when I came in, you know, most about half the rigs had two, and half had three, and now everyone has three. And you know, you've seen land rigs with four, and of course, offshore rigs might have up to ten. Right. Um, and and I think a lot of that technology was driven off just understanding the size and maybe the classification of different solids that we were drilling up. Can you guys touch a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So, like Matt mentioned, I think the uh, the size range is is really 
the formation dependent. I think it's going to be, you know, shale, if you're drilling a nice vertical section of shale, you might see big cuttings. If you're drilling in surface hole, you're going to see clay. And of course, you can chemically treat clay, but you're going to see all manner of size of solids come up there. Um, and then when you get into like sandstone, you might not see anything larger than a sand sized particle, which is, you know, around the 74 micron range. So um, really at that point, because 100% of the flow returns come over the shale shakers, you know, selecting the correct screen size became uh, really important. And I think in, in making sure you're getting that first, uh, we call it first cut, mm-hmm. uh, the first line of defense, so to speak, uh, the shell shaker's got to be right. To put some perception to it, uh, if you can visually think, uh, if you take a, a pebble, let's say like a piece of gravel, you're looking at around 2,000 microns. If you have a piece of sand, we're talking about one tiny little speck of sand, uh, smallest size there is around 74 microns. Uh, the human hair can get down to about 40 microns uh, in size. Uh, average is about you know, between 70 and 50. 40 microns is also where the human eye, you start to lose visibility. Mm. After that, you still have solids uh, in, in the classification, which we call colloidal, uh, meaning microscopic. So you're looking at the size of uh, blood capillaries, pollen in the air, uh, things that are extremely small. Mm. Uh, so... Again, based on formation and how uh, the solids degrade uh, on the trip up, you know, the well bore, uh, the shaker's really going to see a, a vast variety of sizes. Yeah. One thing, too, that, uh, and I was still in the field at the time, but the, recently it went from everyone was, was so uh, accustomed to mesh size, you know, like throw, you know, 85 mesh or like it, they kind of went off the mesh size, but then. I think it's like API 13C came along and kind of changed those up. Can you describe like what the major difference is or why that came about? That was something I was always curious about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so mesh count was really just is the number of holes in, in a wire, one layer of wire mesh. Uh, it's just the number of holes per linear inch, right? So okay. if you just took a ruler and that's the number of holes in that screen. The problem is you could, if it's a rectangular opening, it would have less holes in one direction per linear inch versus a square opening uh, in that different direction, right? So, uh, and you could also, the wire thickness mattered. And so when you just went strictly off mesh count, it was hard for operators to really determine, well, what kind of screen cut point, actually, what is the opening of aperture in the screen that I'm actually getting? So the API basically came together and, and kind of made a standard or a recommended practice, I should say off of uh, the mining industry from ASTM sieves and just said, look, let's just go off of kind of what's already accepted for for size range and for sizing and uh, and took it from there and really established what they call a D100. And that's just the, the cut point that that size screen will make, mm. uh, at least in a laboratory setting, not under any G-forces, gravitational forces. And it's also really important to note that uh, when we refer to mesh, uh, mesh, again, is a single layer of wire. Shell shaker screens uh, predominantly, like, from the, I don't know, late 80s all the way to today are three layers. Right. So three okay. layers of mesh wire placed on top of each other, offset. Uh, so in order to count the number of holes, aside from all the other factors that Charlie said, there's just literally no way to do it, and it's an unfair classification system. So hmm. um, that's why the API really went through the extensive study 
uh, to put that recommended practice into play. Makes sense. So uh, it's either three layers of screen or one big layer of silicone is from what I've seen. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) (laughs) I hate seeing that, by the way. (laughs) Well, you see it. I think it's people, you know, trying to extend the life of their screens and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I think it's uh, when you get to the point of, uh, you know, half the screen covered in silicone, it's like, you know, the screen is supposed to allow fluid to go through at some point. It it creates some other problems for (laughs) you um, once you get to the guys that are super happy with the silicone gun but. yeah no it's uh that was something as a roughneck i i tended to uh, i was like well i could either put silicone on it or change it out and back then it was a pain in the you know what to change screens out so uh yeah i had a silicone gun ready to rock and roll anytime i seen some holes and then they came out with these fancy plugs that actually worked okay but again the idea is having as much surface area as possible to do its job so uh yeah that's definitely not one of the best practices i will admit um but anyway so uh can you describe there's there's and not necessarily name brand, but are there different types of shakers or are they all similar? Like they're all just these big, you know, machines that have screens that shake or has there, has it evolved any way, uh, like just on a broad spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, generally speaking, right. There's uh, you know, there's, there's a few people that make shell shakers out there, uh, mm-hmm. more than a few. Um, and I think most customers just say, yes, my shaker is this color or mm-hmm. no, it's this color. And that's kind of how we distinguish between, you know, who, but uh, really there is some things that go into it. Um, and predominantly it's the motion that Matt kind of mentioned earlier, we used to have kind of downhill machines where the solids would really kind of roll downhill with the assistance of one motor and a circular motion. Now you see almost every shaker is uphill mm-hmm. or flat to uphill, uh, providing a linear motion with two motors. Or a balanced elliptical motion uh, that's you know just providing help helping those solids kind of push uphill, giving it more retention time to dry those cuttings out and, and give it more capacity for fluid. And I think that's just the, those are the main predominant you know evolutions that you've seen. Uh, and then now there's just different ways to you know hold screens down. There's different ways of making screens, and those are the kind of the changes that you're seeing. Uh, and it is getting easier to change screens, by the way. I think everyone's kind of been conscious of that. So uh, yeah. coming around on that. Yeah, it used to be quite is. the operation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's different configurations in the screen deck as well. Uh, there's a flat, convex, concave, multiple deck. Uh, so there's, there's a variety out there to choose from. Interesting, interesting. And I would imagine there's been several studies to to try and identify which one is the most effective, but I think it depends on the drilling conditions and the type of rock that you're bringing to surface, hey? Or Yeah, I think everyone brings value. You know, there's a lot of uh there's a lot of folks that make good products out there, and I think mm. it's just um, you know, there's always I guess like Ford and Chevys, there's probably some brand preferences out there uh to some extent, and then there's just some also like this is what my rig has and I'm going to live with it. So Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Well, let, uh, what about secondary means of solids control? You meant, we mentioned screen uh, shakers. We talked a little bit about screens, which we can dive into a little more. But uh, in terms of secondary, you know, what happens after uh, shakers? Yeah. So typically, we kind of classify primary solids control as really the shakers, and then we call it secondary solids control. You've got uh, hydrocyclones or uh, mud cleaners, like Matt mentioned, and then the centrifuge, and then beyond that, you'll hear a term a lot called the backyard. What's in the backyard? And uh, those are really, it's solids control uh, uh, looking equipment, right? It's shakers, it's centrifuges. It's just arranged in a different way for waste management practices predominantly. So those are not going to remove solids from your system. They've already been removed. Those are more focused on fluid recovery from the solids that have been removed, drying those cuttings out, either for disposal purposes, uh, trucking purposes, or just to just, like I said, to get that fluid back. We can recover any of that fluid that we've taken off with the primary equipment. We want to try to capture some of that back. And then there's some kind of 
you know, in between setups like Bayright recovery uh, centrifuges, where you've got a low speed centrifuge that's uh, in theory pulling out you know, the Bayright and returning that to the active system, and then a followed up by a high-speed centrifuge that's going to polish that effluent or take out as many low grabs in the effluent and then return that liquid back to the system. So uh, there's a few other, you know, kind of in-between systems like that that I think are somewhere in the middle. They're not exactly primary solids control. They're not exactly secondary. Uh, they're right. not exactly waste management either. So quickly, I know we talked about a secondary, the centrifuges, and I know we're going to dive deep into that. Um on the cones, I think just making it short and sweet, because I think they're always bolted to the rig. Um, <laughs> they're seldom is the pump actually functional. They're not used that often. Um, sometimes I see people try and do different things, but could y'all just explain when, where, why? Um, should they actually be fixed at some point? Would they bring something to the table, or is there a reason that we've let them rust? So hydrocyclones absolutely bring a piece of the puzzle to the table because they do separate solids. Uh, I think the main concern, uh, obviously, from our tech service department uh, that we've seen is improper pump sizing, uh, header design, uh, overflow design, and whether, you know, how far they're extending their piping and plumbing and are uh, the pressure gauges working. So there's a, there's a lot of different technical aspects to it. But let's just say that the everything is sized properly, running properly. Uh, your hydrocyclones, both a desander and a desilter, will remove solids. And it's it's a based on mass. Um, you know, internally inside the hydrocyclone, you've got essentially two different vortexes that are forming. Uh, the inner vortex carries the lighter, cleaner fluid out and up out uh, to the overflow and into a clean tank. Uh, the more dense solids and, and heavier particles, and uh, they typically stay on the outside vortex and they fall to the bottom, uh, which comes out in a spray discharge. Um, I think the, the biggest concern, though, regarding running um, the hydrocyclones, uh, number one, is in terms of a desander, your screen technology nowadays where you can easily run most of the time an API 170, API 200, uh, you know, with the capacity, you're, you're taking out exactly what a desander is designed to remove anyway. Hmm. So they become kind of obsolete. Uh, so space-wise and, and the cost and, and trying to get all the plumbing correct, you know, you can kind of put that out, uh, out, out of the works. Uh, in terms of a desilter, uh, your, your underflow of a desilter tends to come out really, really wet. Now, if you've got holes in your screens and you're bypassing... Uh, and you've got a lot of solids uh, that you know are making their way down towards the centrifuge. You really probably want to save a little bit of life of your centrifuge and kick on those desilters every now and then, and uh, try to clean the mud up a little bit so that um, any silt and sand that that did bypass, you know, really is not going to be spun in the bowl at a high speed. Uh, but what you really need to look at, especially in an oil-based mud, is uh, when your cuttings do come out and spray discharge. Yeah, they're going to be, excuse me, they're going to be very wet um, just because solids inherently, uh, they absorb liquid internally and then they adsorb liquid on the outer surface. So uh, they're always going to be coated in, in a, a little bit of fluid regardless. So when you have all of that coming out in a really fine range out of a cone, it's, you end up losing a lot of mud. Hmm. Which can sometimes be great if you've already got a huge solids problem. 
Um, I probably shouldn't put that in a recorded message, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know we know those tricks of of you know running a little bit of mud off the end of the shakers, or you know and, and normally it's the company man being like, "Look, I can't dump mud, but let's just say we put a really weak pump on the desander for no reason." And <laughs> uh, you know there's there's all those sort of games, but if you get into properly operating equipment and mud that solids have not gotten to, um, you have to scratch your head and say, "Okay, am I?" Am I really adding any value by running those? So I, w- I wanted to I want to make sure we included that because I sure. think people have questions, and then really you know dive deep into you know shakers and centrifuges, the stuff we see every day. Right. So uh, with regards to the backyard, we mentioned shakers. Um, a lot of folks out there, especially when running oil based mud, are familiar with uh, a, another type of shaker, which is called a drying shaker. Can you guys describe the use and, and sort of function behind that? Yeah, absolutely. The the main purpose of the drying shaker, like I mentioned before, is to is the, the the goal is to remove or capture recapture some of the fluid that was maybe lost on those primary shakers. And sometimes you see folks run them, you know, run the primary shakers low, and they'll let a wet discard go to the drying shakers. So they don't worry about it. But um, the, the the hang up there they need to know is that you're removing those solids, then you're giving them an opportunity to get back into the system with those drying shakers. You're taking that effluent from the drying shakers. Um, and what you see a lot is like, I need to get these cuttings really, really dry. So I'm going to screen out with a, maybe an API 200, screen out really fine on the flow line. And then I'm going to use a really coarse screen on the drying shakers. Well, you're not just recapturing fluid. You're recapturing the solids that that fluid was attached to as well. You're recapturing all those finer solids that you just removed. Um, and, and the key there is they've got to be, now you've got to centrifuge that. And if it's so thick and solids laden that you've got to, you know, to pump it, you've got to add more either active or base fluid it can become potentially, uh, it can become, you know, not worth the effort, so to speak. So it's, you got to mm. be careful. I think the right, there's right ways to do it and there's wrong ways to do it. Um, and, you know, the backyard companies will, will vary. I should say secondary solids control companies, you know, those guys. Right. So what, are, are there any uh, sort of things that, that we as mud engineers can look out for? Because I've had really good success with drying shakers, mm-hmm. um, you know, assuming that what the underflow is being processed, you know, properly. Um, but are there any big rules of thumbs or anything that you can kind of note that would help uh, identify whether the bang isn't worth a buck or can you touch on that? Yeah. So I think if, if, if you've got no way to quantify, uh, one thing to look out for, I guess is a better way to put it is maybe you should know how much you're recovering per day. Um, and that's something that the operator, you know, should know is, you know, am I recovering enough to justify the cost of having all this equipment out here? But in, in assuming you are, then making sure that if you're not screening the exact same size as you are on the flow line, if you're screening a little bit coarser, say, um, then you, either way, you need to centrifuge that effluent, right? And so making sure that that's 100% getting processed by the centrifuge and whether mm-hmm. you catch it in a bullet tank or catch it in that tank and pump it periodically to the centrifuge, that's all fine. Um, but then, and we're going to talk about centrifuge, kind of, you know, checking centrifuge, but you have to make sure that you know what the centrifuge is being fed, and then you you see what you're getting in returns too. Because like I said before, there's a chance you could be returning solids that were already removed right. back into the active, and which just costs money in dilution later. Yeah, no. And there's, and there's a good chance you're probably not going to get those back out. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, something else that that comes up, and it's not something that I've seen too often, but VCDs or uh, vertical cuttings dryers. Uh, can you touch a little bit on those? Yeah, really, I think born offshore, uh, and that's something that's you see it, it's made its way to, to land drilling rigs occasionally. Um, and I think where it makes sense economically, offshore, you've got 
obviously zero discharge in a lot of areas of the world, uh, including the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so you need cuttings to be as dry as they can because they've got a significant logistical cost of getting those cuttings uh, back to shore base and wherever they're going to be, you know, land farmed or whatever the disposal method is. Yeah, and Gulf of Mexico, of course, they you can discharge, but it's got a certain amount of oil percentage. Correct. And the cuttings dryer is the only thing, well, one of very few select pieces of absolutely. equipment that will get you there. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. And so bringing those onto land rigs, you see it now, um, whether or not it's economical, I, you know, we've done a few studies with or seen a few studies, but it's, it's, I think the biggest thing is if you've got a known disposal cost problem or you've got a, you know, haul off trucking problem where you need to be hauling dry, uh, dry cuttings, then, then that's something that could provide value to you. But it, again, it's a balance. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about the economics and kind of all the things associated to solids control and fluids in the next podcast. But um, suffice to say that. The, the vertical cutting dryers provides an effluent that's pretty solids laden, and again, more so than the drying shakers, it's it's kind of a process to get solids out of there. Well, and I think one thing to note as well, and and this actually is a quote from Sam Strickland, <laughs> is it, whether it's a shell shaker, a drying shaker, a centrifuge, a vertical cutting dryer, if you see cuttings coming off the discharge that are bone dry, you know dry. Dries can be more than likely those are large size cuttings because there's less surface area, and so uh, just because what you see doesn't mean it's economical. It it, mm. it it all has to go back to being able to quantify uh, what's left in your system that you still are now going to have to treat. Yeah, no, that's a very good point because that's really a lot of folks just look at that as as sort of the end all be all, but don't really understand the full effect of of, of, of what's exactly happening. So that, that's I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I wanted to dive a little bit more into shakers, and, and I apologize. I got a little excited when we first started talking about it, so we covered a few of the topics. But uh, let's talk a little bit about screen life. We, you know, we talked about it. I made the joke about having silicone there. But 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 really, how can we optimize screen life um, and, and really identify the performance uh, with screens? I think on screen life, you know, we get a lot of calls. Uh, the technical service department does uh, regarding, you know, screen life and, and how can I – improve it right because if they're not lasting long enough then you've got you could be creating a solids control problem with your solids control equipment right so um i think it's really kind of brilliance in the basics i mean it's it's having you know a pit hand or your derrick man or whomever is in charge of the shakers go by there every so often take a look make sure that they're inspecting the, the screens for holes um every time they make a hook you know take a look at them real quick spray them off with base fluid Sometimes that, you know, when the pumps come on and off, you know, stuff gets kicked up on the screens. And once it's kicked up and dry, like if it sets up real fast, then that screen is basically blocked off, right? You're not going to get anything through there anymore. And that creates problems with conveyance and pushing the solids down the screen. So you'll see like piles of cuttings just kind of sitting on a shaker. Um, and that's probably just, that could probably be fixed with base fluid. Um, so just brilliance in the basics, I think, is, uh, you know, going by checking all the time, hitting it with base fluid, making sure the deck angles, you're not overflowing, obviously not losing mud, but you're not all the way back at the back where they're so dry, it's caking up on screens. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the, the easiest way. And then there's some, you know, general kind of contaminant things, I think, that uh, we occasionally see that's, it's, you know, maybe it's a function of what the formation's giving you, maybe it's a function of the mud, um, but like water wet solids comes to mind. Those are uh, times like that, it's very hard to manage screen life because those kind of solids or sticky clays is another great example that, you know, that haven't been treated appropriately, just hit on that screen and just don't want to move. And then once that happens, your screen life, you know, you, you've got, you know, a shaker that's vibrating 1800 times a minute. 
right? And so every time it's doing that, you've got more and more weight piling up on it and less and less solids that are conveying off it that just abuses screens and beats them to death. And then it kind of creates a vicious cycle of like, man, I just changed those screens and it's cold out here and I don't want to change another one and, and I'm tired and, and then it just gets worse and worse. And as, as a, you know, if you have an API 200 screen on, but with 50 holes in it, it's not an API 200 anymore, right? So <laughs> Yeah, you um, take the average, it's far less. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, has there been, or I guess... The, with regards to screens, uh, what does the future look like? I mean, is is there anything kind of unique or sort of out of the normal scope uh, that you know most folks are familiar with? I mean, because it just seems like it's such a common, uh, it's so important, but it's just it's such a common nuisance. And and if you don't have good screen uh, practices and you're not taking care of them, you're not changing them, you're not cleaning them. Um, you know, do you ever see like Solid control companies flipping the whole game and, and not even using screens, or, or is there anything that that you know the future holds with regards to that? Yeah, I mean on the new technology front, I mean there's, I think I mean I don't know what everybody's working on, but I think uh, I know we're working on some stuff that's going to be a little bit different. I think screens are going to be hard to get rid of, yeah, altogether. But I think people are doing a lot of good things uh, to hold screens down better, which sounds not terribly like technologically advanced, but. Um, when you're making something that vibrates as off, you know, as hard and as as often as a, as a shaker does, it's hard to hold the screen down. If you're not holding it down, and it's getting loose, then it's going to be it's going to be detrimental to screen life in general. So you're seeing some advancements made in just how screens are held down. Uh, that's good. And then materials wise, I think there's you know it's there's not much to a stainless steel pretension wire mesh screen. Sure. So um, look for some advancements coming down the pike in in, in that regard. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, <clears throat> so. You mentioned water wet solids and, and sticky clays. From your standpoint, what can um, folks do to to help mitigate that being an issue? Gosh, I might flip the script and put that back on y'all. I don't know how do how, how you prevent uh, water wet solids. Well, um, we've you know it, we it comes up a lot, and you know some of our initial conversations were actually from our. Pod, podcast on water face salinity and, and water exchange and, and oil based mud and um, those sticky cuttings you can see um, if you're actually uh, drawing, uh, giving the formation water, giving the cuttings water. Um, and then, uh, you know, insufficient oil wetting, just not adding wetting agent while drilling, waiting up too fast and actually starving the system of wetting agent. Um, those things can lead to some pretty sticky solids. Um, on the shale inhibition side of things, um, you know, we have a lot of very expensive options for that, um, and it can be quite a bit of a challenge. And, and this is an interesting point, even thinking about compatibility with solids control equipment is we might add an amine or, or a polymer, and part of it is, you know, does that polymer cause things to, you know, drip off the edge of the shaker where before they wouldn't, um, but then take it a step further and think of like a silicate mud system where the cuttings are um, very, very hard and, and uh very, very hard on elastomers and those seals around the shakers and uh, valves and, and everything uh, where you typically have very good solids control efficiency, but um, that assumes that everything was compatible that you switched to. Um, so that's probably kind of the sledgehammer of water-based mud um, that isn't used very often for a wide variety of reasons that I talk people out of it. But, um, you know, in the in the intermediate, it's obviously we see some sticking cuttings coming across and... Um, there's two parts of that. I sympathize with guy in the field, gal in the field, who's like, look, I'm getting yelled at because the mud's not inhibiting what we have going on. 
Um, and then there's the support you have on the back end to say, okay, here's our experience. Here's what we need to add. Um, or better yet, um, if we can catch samples and figure out at least by, you know, quickly, uh, what our options might be. Um, but with that comes a price and normally you need a, a decision from town on, okay, we're going to pay a bunch for this additive, um, and hopefully not blind out our screens and not have what likely issues we could be having down hole. So, um, that's a long-winded approach to it, but it's just water-based mud. There's a huge swath of options. Oil-based mud, something's wrong. Yeah. So something's very wrong, we'll put it that way. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think for us, that's, you know, a little bit about the screens and how they fail, right, with the with the water-wet cuttings. When the screens don't convey the cuttings anymore, that's really how screens fail. And so you just see it accelerated way more so when when you've got cuttings that are sticking on it, right? It's, it's really not so much abrasion that fails screens as much as you would think. It's certainly a contributing factor, but it's pressure on the wire screen. It's fatigue failure, and those screens fatigue with a, it's a cyclic fatigue failure. And it's, it's lame stuff that screen manufacturers study and pay attention to. But when you've got something that's not moving off of it, you've got an already a fluid head that's pouring and pushing down on it, and you've got the cuttings that are constantly pouring through it. Then you've got solids that are just sticking there and increasing that pressure where it's not relieved and it can't flow through a screen anymore. It's just accelerating that uh, that fatigue process, and that's going to cause a nightmare, cause headaches for uh, for. So we get the call. It's you know, hey, your screens are you know they're failing too fast, and we say well, like, what's the fluid look like? You know, or it's not like a you know he said she said battle, but it's you know it's it's usually us going out to the rig and working with a mud engineer. It's actually a great time for us to kind of partner and learn mm. uh, what's going on here. And uh, usually, I mean, we always work them out, and it's always just something that you know everyone's got to deal with what they what comes their way. Yeah, you know. So how often do you have where you don't actually have a seal on the screen? Um, just in the, and the reason I'm asking is one thing. AES says we have a solids control guy who will probably end up on one of these podcasts someday. Um, but uh, he said he goes out and does these kind of audits of rigs, and basically we've talked about size classification. He'll catch a sample at the flow line, you know, uh, under the shaker, um, before and after the centrifuge, and we run laser particle analysis predominantly and say, okay, we're one, are we getting the cut we thought we were? And the other part is every once in a while we'll get one where it's wow, before and after the shaker seems to match as if nothing's happening, and. You'd think that would be a really obvious thing that there would be mud just like pouring around something on the shaker, and it's more well. We went back and took a look at it, and yeah, your one of the gaskets wasn't even there, or uh, something along those lines. Where it's like you give an assumption, and then upon closer inspection, it's like, whoa, hey, this this is really messed up. Right. I think that uh, the maintenance thing and talking about best practices that you know that might ultimately be the rig hands job, but that's something that a mud engineer could uh, could and should take a hard look at. Uh, maybe, you know, every between every well, just are my shaker, you know, my seals, my bed materials, everything in good condition. Um, and, and that's and that's why I mentioned, too, that a lot of the companies are we're working hard on holding screens down better, right? And, and going back to the best practices, even when you change, when you do change a screen, take some base fluid, hose down that all those bed materials and stuff. If you have a rock, sitting on the on the on the rubber seal and then you put a screen on it and compress it or you know wedge it into place uh that rock's not doing you any favors it's holding the screen you know it's creating a gap for solids to go in and around the screen instead of be processed by the screen but it's also probably ruining that rubber as well right which which is again like it's just more work for you later so if you can take the time to hose it off uh take a good look quick inspection of those uh, gasket materials i mean that's going to save you a lot of time and energy later i think and a lot of potential mud issues as well solids issues building up 
So yeah, it's good that good that folks are paying attention to that now because it's it's like the <clears throat> cheapest, easiest, like best practice probably out there. Yeah, for mud pumps and everything else too. Mm. Uh, is there still such a thing? Uh, and this was I don't know if it's just an old roughneck trick, but I always used to take a marker and put it on the top of the shaker. And if it made a figure eight, I knew it was shaking properly. Is that still a thing? Or was that just like an old roughneck tail? Uh, so you can just on like the side of a motor, you can tell the motion if the motion's correct. And but one or one or both of the motors are on or not on. So if you see a, uh, I think it's, if you put one dot and you'll you should see a line, like in the motion oh, of the that's shaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. linear motion. If you have one motor on, it'll be more like a circle. Okay. Uh, or an ellipse. But again, you've got some shakers that intentionally make an ellipse, but that's that ellipse is so tight that it's it looks more like, like a, line a line to your oh, naked yeah. eye. Yeah. But if you have one on, it's really pretty apparent. You'll see like a circle okay. going on almost. Yeah. So Yeah. I always used to They weren't fooling you, I think. Yeah. yeah. Or, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> then they gave him the keys to the V door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Find me a five gallon bucket of H two zero or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like yeah. That. No, I, I like definitely went through uh, quite a few of those yeah. and that was one that you know, of course, if things were happening at the shakers, I didn't know what was going on. Of course, I got my fancy marker and put a dot on there. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's good. And so really, I had no idea what I was talking about. But someone showed me that, and I thought it was pretty cool. So it made me look smart for, you know, the few minutes that I would look at it. But um, anyway, well, let's move on to centrifuges. Uh, can you guys describe sort of the mechanics and how they function or what's going on uh, behind the scenes of a centrifuge? Sure. So, uh completely opposite of a shell shaker, which vibrates at, at a relatively high G, we're thinking six, seven Gs, uh, and, and making a screen shake and, and bounce particles essentially down it and off of it, uh, centrifuge is completely different. Uh, the mud actually uh, is pumped in uh, into the inner core. There's, there's like three different layers of the centrifuge. There's a, uh, a conveyor, which is like an auger, and inside that conveyor is where the feed tube is inserted, and that's where your fluid is pumped uh, into the very inner part of the centrifuge. Uh, then that fluid exits out of that conveyor into the bowl, and the bowl is uh, just exactly what it is. It's a long cylind uh, cylindrical conical bowl uh, that spins, and, and you actually can spin the conveyor and the bowl at different speeds. And so once your uh, fluid picks up speed... There's a force imparted on it right on the axis, right in the middle, um, which essentially is your G-force. So what your particles are subject to, there's a buoyancy force, a, um, a drag force, uh, there's a gravitational force, and all together when those equal out, uh, you have your G-force. And it's your G-force, your terminal velocity of your cuttings, that essentially separates the solids from the fluid. Uh, so... A centrifuge is really going to only separate based on mass. So your heavier, more dense particles are going to make their way from the center um, through the layers of fluid to the uh, sidewall of the bowl way faster than any of your smaller particles. Okay. Well, that makes sense because I've always heard folks talk about, oh, we need to get rid of the high grabs before we can even get to the low grabs. And uh, kind of the way you describe it makes sense now. Uh, so... There's different, I know, speeds. Can you guys talk about sort of low speed, centrifuge, high speed, variable speed, and kind of what all that means? Yeah, so when you uh, set your centrifuge, you turn it on, say, at a, a low speed, let's say 900 RPMs, um, and you're getting about, let's say, 1,000 Gs. Your terminal velocity 
of the cuttings are going to be set at a certain rate to where a certain mass or size range of particles are going to be imparted by the force and able to carry to the sidewall of the bolt. Obviously, as you speed that centrifuge up, um, and that could be either speeding the bowl or the, the conveyor. It depends on, um, you know, what type of discard that you're looking for. Uh, but as you increase the speed of the bowl and increase your G's, then you're imparting more force, which uh, also affects your smaller cuttings, and they're also able to make their way through the, the fluid and over to the sidewall and then scraped out by the conveyor. Um, so... You know, a lot of people talk about getting the high grabs out uh, and before the low grabs. Well, you've got high gravity solids, which the API will spec out into a certain range. Uh, typically, you know, more than, I think, 30%, you know, less than 6 microns. So you have this range of really fine particles that are high grav. Uh, but all around that, you're also going to have solids that are low gravity solids that are uh, roughly the same size, if not a little bit bigger. Um, and when they reach about 1.8, the spherical diameter of a bayrite particle, which is, you know, nerding out here, but uh, essentially that low-gravity solid particle uh, will settle and, and be discarded at the same rate as a high-gravity particle. Hmm. Interesting. I think where you get the, uh, the the terminology a lot is in like the Bayrite recovery process, which we kind of mentioned earlier. You, you see the low speed centrifuge. What you're trying to do is just uh, balance um, the solids input with retention time inside the centrifuge. And if you can, the thought is is, and it's not it's not outrageous, but it's just a hard balance, and you've got to validate in the field um, because you can't measure all this stuff as it's happening inside the centrifuge, and the centrifuge doesn't know what it's getting fed. It just separates by mass and it just goes right. So. Um, with the retention time and the pond depth settings and things like that, you can feed it at certain rates uh, to maximize your high gravity solids removal. Mm. And then when you start seeing that number decrease, you know you're going to adjust feed rates or you're going to adjust um, you know conveyor speeds and things like that to adjust the retention time to just get those high gravities out as much of the high gravities out as you can because they're going to settle faster than a low gravity solid. Uh, and then and then you're you're hoping that the low gravity solids kind of just continue on and, and get discarded with the liquid. Right. Or wouldn't be the effluent. So, so uh, to make sure I'm understanding, so a low feed rate would help with higher retention time and m more chance of the low gravity solids to be ejected. Or am I? Well, you got to remember throughput of a centrifuge. So whatever you put in at whatever rate is going to come out at the exact same rate. So uh, if you have a slower feed rate and then you spin the bowl at a you know red uh, medium speed. Um, then those solids are going to sit into the pond longer because it's taken longer for uh, everything to process before it's able to reach the effluent, like the, the throughput all the way through. Okay. So in what case would you want to go low feed rate? In what case would you want to go high feed rate? I think on the polishing side where you're, where you're talking about a, a more high-speed centrifuge, you just want to see how much of the percentage of flow that you can process from your active system, like in a low mud weight. Then you would uh, you could you could adjust that, and as long as you're getting a desired cut, like a lot of times they'll just measure it in like your density. You're measuring the effluent density versus the feed density. Hmm. Um, and if I'm getting a half pound cut from my you know feed to my effluent, I'm gonna just keep increasing the flow rate and adjusting the conveyor differential speed um, to maximize that flow rate at that cut point, right? So it's more about getting rid of the solids that you want typically, 
than it is like, let's just see how much we can pump into this thing because you can pump a lot of fluid through a centrifuge, but if you're not getting a cut, then it's not worth it. Right. Essentially. <clears throat> so, and, and this is kind of goes back to my experience, but, but I remember being on a rig and, and it was always, the goal was to always process at the close to or equal, uh, to the rate that you're pumping now of course if you're pumping 1200 gallons a minute that's probably i don't know if that's even achievable but you know for the most part if you're drilling slimmer hole and you're pumping you know four or five hundred gallons a minute um is that a good rule of thumb or like it sounds like it's not because you're you may be changing the feed rate um and is that this is a feed rate the same as processing rate or yeah, yeah, am I, think, I getting mixed up? No, I think definitively it's the same. It's it'd okay. be, uh, I think where confusion lets in is some people, depending on where you are, it is achievable to process the entire active circulating volume mm -hmm. uh, at the same rate which you're pumping. Maybe like in the DJ or somewhere like that, like in the U.S., just thinking where you've got lightweight muds anyway, a light, you know, eight-pound oil base. A lot of rigs up there would use like two large bowl, large diameter bowl centrifuges, and you might be able to achieve equivalent feed rate but okay. i think where we look at it is if you've got a centrifuge out there one if you've got it use it because you go out there and i think it's just great mystery and no one really understands what's happening so people rent it and pay for it and it just sits there um or it it maybe maybe it messes up fluids parameters a little bit and people don't like messing with it. it's just too much work or they'll do it like four hours a day um but what you can do is if it's if you're pumping 500 gallons a minute uh with your system and you can pull 100 through your centrifuge and get a good cut I mean, that's maybe 20% that you're going to process. And if that's coming back as clean as your active is already, then that's maybe 20% less dilution you might have to add, right? So using mm -hmm. it a little all day is better than not using it at all for sure. and Or just using it maybe like, I'm going to get the same amount of fluid throughput if I do it as much as I can pump through there in four hours and then I'm done. Mm -hmm. And then like doesn't exactly... That's, that's oil field logic though. You can yeah, go back absolutely. The, you can go back in the trailer after that. Well, yeah, it's like the, uh, I think when you bake a cake, right, if you put it in for half as long at twice the uh, temperature, temperature, yeah, that comes out. So I think, it, I don't know why it wouldn't work with centrifuges. We need to get yeah. hotter ovens. That's yeah. yeah, right. We could save a lot of our time. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and the reason I'm asking these questions is because it, it just, it seems like no matter who you ask, everyone has their own way of doing it. And it, it, it's like, and every well is different. Every scenario is different. But it's just like, it'd be so cool if it was like there was a set rule, which which there never will be, but to understand the cause and effect of, of these the different variables that, that we can, you know, apply centrifuges to. Because um, in my mind, whenever folks would talk about, oh, we slow down the feed rate, I'm thinking, well, how are you ever going to process the whole system? Like in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I want to process, I want to be able to process the whole system, you know, within a few circulations. But if I'm only, you know, processing X gallons a minute, which is like 15% of my circulating volume, in my mind, I feel like I would just continuously fall behind. But where you're talking is like, well, that may actually just reduce your dilution by X percent, thus saving some money. So, uh, yeah, and that, that makes more sense. And I mean, is there any good rule of thumb or, or practices that, that you guys would recommend with regards to that kind of stuff? Or does it really, is, is there just, is the answer, it depends? Well, it's always, it depends. But yeah. I, I do think uh, for brick personnel, they need to understand the centrifuge and, mm -hmm. and the parts, kind of how we went through it, but maybe a little more in depth in the, in the settings. And then also note, uh, you know, if you've got holes in your screens, you've got, if you're running the cones, as we mentioned earlier, whatever it may be, if those are all running inefficiently, then the settings on the centrifuge are going to have to change 
They can't just be set at a, a certain rate and walk off mm. uh, because your size of solids are going to change. And therefore, what the how the centrifuge is going to process is going to change. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, I think as far as rules of thumb, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a self-proclaimed centrifuge expert. We have a few at Derek, and it'd be, it'd be fun to do a podcast on just centrifuges and operations and stuff because there is a lot of theory and certainly a lot of opinions out there. But I think, yeah. in general, um, yeah, your effluent should be uh, to some degree significantly less dense than your in your feed, right? You're, you should be removing solids with your solids control equipment. So, um, you know, if you're if you're just trying to go at like a really low flow rate to get those bone dry cuttings and dust. You're probably not removing as many solids as you could be, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I would be checking my effluent. Like I just said, generally, I mean, you might get a three pounds cut through your Bayrite recovery centrifuge system. You might get a you know half pound cut through a high speed polishing system. Mm-hmm. So I, I hate to because it's every area is different, every mud weight's different, every it's just hard. Like, and I hate to have, give the it depends answer, but yeah, right. it really is variable to where you are and what your application is. Well, and I think it comes down to proper planning from whatever solids mm-hmm. control companies out there, understanding the fluids that are that they're going to be working with, understanding the densities, and then you know making a fit for purpose backyard. I think yeah. at the end of the day is what it is, and, it, and and there's no one size fits all. I mean, that's that's really the, what I'm you know I'm hearing is is that'll never happen, but you know, being educated, understanding, you know, the ins and outs and, and what does what under certain different circumstances, I think is extremely useful. Um, you mentioned, we talk a little bit about effluent density and, and sort of what's coming out. And one thing that I remember burning a bunch of retorts whenever I thought solids control wasn't working quite, you know, as it needed to be was it would cut the mud weight, but then the low gravity solids would be way higher than the active system. So I was thinking, well, you know, I'm, you know, you're basically giving me back low gravity solids. But from what I understand, talking to uh, a solids control company that we work with, uh, just that's on the same rig, rather, um, that there's a reason for that. Can you touch on effluent and, and what we need to look for as mud engineers if, we, if we're just trying to do spot checks or f- seeing if things are working correctly? Yeah, sure. I think, uh, you know, in, in general, I think you, you, you need to nail on the head earlier with the plan thing, right? Having a plan and actually going to execute it, just like anything else. This should be part of the fluids management program right. and what you're going to do from a solids control perspective. I think uh, people get a little bit too hung up in, you know, an exact density target number. And this is just Charlie's personal opinion. Um, or like a specific low gravity target number, knowing that there's always going to be low gravity solids. You know, the last episode we talked about kind of the good solids versus the bad solids. Mm-hmm. You can't strip them all out, right? If this thing was returning diesel, then you're still just going to have to add a bunch of product and everything else. And, uh, and you probably won't be able to get to that, um, you know, water-based mud you might with a flocking system, that kind of thing. But um, I think the low gravity percent number, if it was uh, somehow higher than, than, you know, like we talked about the drying shaker, right? If it's a higher than, than your active system from the get-go, from the effluent, then that's a scenario where you definitely want to look out for it. Mm. But if you're just pulling off the active, it's going to remove some solids. So it's going to be less dense and it's going to have less low-gravity solids. Um, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're pulling a, a, a suction uh, sample to just run your mud check off of, right, that's going to be after diesel dilution or base fluid dilution, I should say. Yeah. Um, so typically that's going to be your lowest. So right before it goes down holes, going to be your lowest low-gravity solid. So just because the centrifuge is returning fluid that might be a little bit more dense than the active or a slightly higher low-gravity solids percentage, it should be higher than where it's pulled from. It should be less than where it's pulled from. Makes sense. Regardless, right? You. It's not going to remove all the solids, and you don't want it to, but it's it's going to remove some. You're going to see something come out of the centrifuge. If you're not seeing anything, then it's definitely time to, to call an expert and, and, and get some help on the operational parameters and 
And we missed it on plumbing earlier. I know we kind of joked about it too, but one thing we see often as far as rules of thumb, uh, don't hook your centrifuge up to a sand trap pit. That's okay. Ge- generally not. Uh, it makes sense. Like in your head, you're like, oh, this is where the most of the solids are going to be. But that tank is for settling solids anyway. Okay. Um, and it's it's got the longest retention time of, of any solids control equipment. It's going to sit there the whole time. So um, we see that a lot. And you see packed off centrifuges. And then you see uh, or another set of equipment pulling further downstream than that. And it's pulling like half-processed equipment. So anyway, just on general plumbing, centrifuging, um, understanding where it should be pulled from is, is just as vitally important. And usually right, it's right before the suction pit. That's a huge nugget because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure every rig that I've been on, it's been plumbed differently. And then you get some folks that kind of have that similar mind or sort of thought process is doing mm-hmm. it from the sand trap. But what what would be a general you know recommendation, assuming you have, you know, one centrifuge or, or what's, what's your guys' take on that? Like, where should it be taken from? Well, remember, uh, all solids control equipment, is designed to remove successfully finer solids. So from your shell shakers, that underflow needs to go down to another clean tank. If you're running some type of mud cleaner cones, whatnot, all of that uh, overflow, the clean fluid, needs to go down to another clean tank down line. Um, so your, your last uh, solids removal tank prior to returning back to your active system uh, in order to start, you know, rebuilding your mud to go down hole, that's where your centrifuge essentially needs to pull from. Mm. Unless you're running it in a Bayright recovery mode, then you're going to have a, you know, a little bit different type of setup, and uh, uh, you need to have your slides and, and piping in the right spots. But that, sure. that's, uh, that's hard to discuss uh, without actually being able to provide a drawing of that. Of course. Yeah, but just a single centrifuge to your last cleanest tank. Okay. Because uh, it's really just taking everything that's left, which should be in colloidal range, and really trying to bring it down to as, as clean as possible. So, and just to make it super simple, you've got your, you know your shakers, and you underneath there you have your sand trap. Then most people know what a settling tank is. Mm-hmm. So if you had three pits, sand trap, settling tank, suction, you would want the settling tank, right? The one right before the suction. Yes, if you have three tanks yeah okay so yeah the, just to, to clarify that because it sounds simple but you know including myself sometimes it gets confusing so <laughs> but um with that being said i know we're cl- getting close to an hour here is there anything else that, that you'd like to recommend or or just any you know food for thought before we close out here uh one thing we did not mention on the shell shaker which is something our company always uh, makes sure we teach best practice wise is uh, you'd want to try to make sure you maintain a fluid endpoint, about 75% coverage on the shell shaker. Ah, good point. Uh, that, that way, you know, let's say you've got a four-panel shaker, three of your screens are covered in fluid. It's only in that pond where you're making your separation. Once those solids come out, uh, you've got, you know, maybe that last panel to to shake off a little bit of the, uh, you know, the viscosity ring that's left uh, prior to falling to discard. But uh, obviously, if you run it too far out, you're going to lose a lot of fluid. If you run it too far back, uh, then your cuttings are going to come out of the fluid a little too fast, still be coated in a lot of uh, of mud, and then you know they've got not that far to go before they're falling out. So, uh, you know, we looked at best practices, just making sure your fluid endpoints are in the right spot. Uh, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought us back to that. Well, uh, with that being said, everyone out there, appreciate you listening. For the Derek folks, what's the best way for anyone to reach out or ask any more questions? 
yeah, so you can uh, catch us anytime at our Houston office. Um, you know, numbers on our website, Derek.com. Okay. Uh, you can hit us at info at, I think it's info at Derek.com. Uh, that just goes to like kind of a general, and that'll be emailed um, and uh, directly to us. If it's a technical question, it'll just get sent to our department anyway. Perfect. Well, uh, look us sure. up on LinkedIn, whatever. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. And we appreciate you guys uh, sort of welcoming everyone's questions with open arms. I'm sure there will be some. So uh, we'll be sure to stay in touch. Uh, but again, all the listeners out there, if you have any questions for Matt and I, hit us up at flowlinepodcast at aesfluids.com. And we'll put all these links in the show notes. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Thank us. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.